into some kind of thing. No one will ever want to be near me. Hey there, and welcome to Season 4 of Marvel by the Month. My name's Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Rob, we've done it. We have made it through three seasons of this thing. This is the first episode of the fourth season of Marvel by the Month. Is this episode 64 or something? Something. I don't I don't really keep count. That's not my jam. It is about, I'd say, 60 more than I thought we were going to pull off. So this is great. It's pretty impressive. Um, I think, you know, we're actually uh, running a pretty legit ship here. And uh, we're also able to, uh, every now and then, pull in a, a really cool guest. Um, yeah. And we have one with <sighs> us tonight. Yeah, you do. Ah, there he is. He spoke <laughs> it up. Well, uh, hang on there. Uh, let me give you uh, a proper big time introduction here. Our guest this week is the Eisner Award nominated artist of High Crimes and Jaeger. He's brought James Bond, Dr. Fate, Moon Knight, Mockingbird, and Godzilla to life on the comics page. And according to Wikipedia, he won the gold medal for wrestling <laughs> in the light heavyweight division at the 1928 Olympics. Ibrahim Mustafa. Thank you for joining us on Marvel Thank by the Month. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time since that gold medal. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't come up very often, so I appreciate you mentioning it. Absolutely, yeah. And may I just say that uh, for uh, a fellow who died in 1968, you are remarkably well-preserved. You know, yeah. I'm a vegetarian. That's how we <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> See, you got that to look forward to, Rob. Yeah, well, I'm a pescatarian now, so I'm going to die any second. 20 <laughs> years of vegetarianism just down the drain when I started eating fish. <laughs> Uh, so Ibrahim, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, this is great. Uh, we are huge fans of your work. Um, oh, thank you very much. And uh, and you have something really cool that you announced recently, uh, your upcoming project. Do you want to talk a little bit about that before we yes. dive into all these old-timey comics? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I have signed a three-book deal with Humanoids, uh, which for those who don't know is a uh, a French publisher renowned for the work of Mobius and Yodorowsky. Um and they have a, a US uh, arm of their uh, publication. So yeah, uh, Mark Wade, who I'm sure Marvel fans will know the name of, <laughs> uh, is the publisher. And um, yeah, I uh, my first book is called Count, and it is a sci-fi reimagining of the Count of Monte Cristo. So, you know, there's robots and, and, uh, cool sword fighting and, you know, floaty <laughs> ships and things like that. Um, and I'm very excited about it, very proud of it. And, uh, it's coming out in the spring of 2021 and it's being colored by, uh, Brad Simpson, who is just incredible. And then, uh, lettered by, I don't, I've never actually heard his name out loud. It is Arabic. So I think I'm getting it right. But Hassan Otsmane el Hau, he is, uh, he's lettering everything these days. So people have probably seen him on red Sonia or he, he letters crowded with Chris Sabella, a uh, bunch of stuff. So anyway, uh, yeah. And uh, March, 2021, I'm being told. Nice. Cool. I cannot wait to get my hands on that. Um, I actually love the Count of Monte Cristo uh, awful lot. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, and you are one of my favorite creators. So oh, well, thank um, you so much. Yeah, that's going to be so great to check out. Um, so, uh, when we first approached you about doing this, uh, I hope I'm not telling any tales out of school, but oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> the only, the only concern you had was that I'm not hugely familiar with like the 1960s stuff. Um, yeah. what, what got you into comics first as a fan and then as a professional? Uh, well, when I was a kid, you know, I was born in 85 and, uh, all of the Christopher Reeve 
movies were on VHS for me by the time I was like aware of media, you know, like, Uh and Superman four was actually my favorite, which came out in 88. (laughs) (laughs) It's still my favorite, uh, but we won't get into that. Um, So, uh, you know, that and the, the 66 Batman show are, were sort of my first awareness of superheroes. Um, and then I had my first comics were John Burns, man of steel, number two, and it came with an audio cassette of voice actors and sound effects. Wow. That was how I learned how to read. (laughs) Um, and then the other one was like a Jim Aparo Batman one-off that I had, I think it's probably written by Denny O'Neill. So, uh, yeah, that was that was my intro, and then you know I was I was into the X Men because of the cartoon. You know, I was a child of the '90s, um, so I would read X Men comics from that era, but I never backtracked. And then so you know, eventually, as my interest in comic books resurged, really, it was it was Smallville, which came on when I was in high school, that made me remember. Oh yeah, I loved Superman when I was a kid, and it was cool to see a modern take on you know the the mythos. Um, and then from there, I, somebody got me a book that was like the, the complete history of Superman and it had a cover by Alex Ross. And I was just like, what is the, like, how, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could make them look like real people, you know? <laughs> so that sent me down the rabbit hole from there and I, you know, I discovered his work and then, you know, Kingdom Come with Mark Wade, the aforementioned. Um, and then, uh, you know, just from there, different writers, different artists, and it was down the rabbit hole. And then I was like, I was always into drawing as a kid. Mm-hmm. all throughout school and everything so you know when i realized oh this is a job people have i that was when i decided i'm gonna do it <laughs> so that's fantastic so i'm excited to get your take on some of these issues because uh <laughs> so rob and i will talk about like the longer we do this podcast the more we basically develop stockholm syndrome um with like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> early marvel comics where it's like we just see these things that come up again and again and again whether it's like you know just crazy leaps of logic or like the treatment of the female characters or something and like oh this is fine and normal and then we'll bring in someone from outside and like no this is crazy like (laughs) yeah somebody seeing the mandarin for the first time when we've seen him you know recur already a number of times and we're like we've we've mentioned oh god this is just a terrible stereotype and uh but then we forget. We're just like, and then, you know, Mandarin shows up with some rings and Iron Man's very upset. And someone's like, wait, what is going on with the Mandarin? Right. You know, yeah. uh, it, those those happen left and right at this point. You know, we. Well, uh, yeah. As you guys know, I'm a big James Bond fan and yeah. not a lot of that holds up very well. So, <laughs> yeah, I have that same experience sometimes. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's super problematic. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the word I use all the yeah. time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That should just be a T-shirt. We should just have like in like classic Marvel font, like <laughs> problematic. <laughs> Your problematic penman is Stan Lee. <laughs> oh. That's also a thing we seem to collect is people's uh, impersonations, which is very awesome. I'm yes. terrible about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but talking of uh, things taken out of historical context, let's take a quick dip into the historical context Ooh. for when these issues were hitting the stands. Uh, these all came out uh, in March of 1966. Um, so we're just going to uh, talk a little bit about some of the things that were in the headlines uh, of the newspapers that were sold right next to them. Uh, so, mm-hmm. Rob, would you like to start us off with a little bit of space race news? <laughs> yes. March 1st, the Soviet space probe Venera 3 crashed on Venus, 
becoming the first spacecraft to land. I'm going to say that in quotes on another planet's surface because uh, that land is crash is a different thing than land, but it still <laughs> made it there. Uh, we, sh- we shot something into space and it landed on Venus. So I, that's good aim. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's at least a C plus. Yeah. Um, also on the, the 1st of March, uh, the British government announced that the country's currency would be decimalized. Uh, the British pound would now be worth 100 cents. Previously, of course, the pound was worth 240 pence, of course. Um, 12 pence equaling a shilling, making 20 pounds worth one shilling, two shillings to a florin, uh, five pence made a crown, and then you had threepence and sixpence. Uh, it's really a mystery why they decided to simplify such an already just dead easy form of currency, but yeah, I guess that's what they decided to do. Uh, on the fourth, John Lennon, uh, a famous uh, a UK member, um, his infamous interview with Maureen Cleave was published in the London Evening Standard, in which he was quoted as saying, "Christianity will go; it will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first: rock and roll or Christianity." Uh, that that was not uh, smiled upon by a lot of people. Um, yeah. As our resident Beatles expert, I assume you might have some context about how he was encouraged to walk that back slightly. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, there was Brian Epstein was like doing this, you know, oh, no, the, you know, the motion cut, cut. And again, in the full context, even in that context, it still sounds, you know, a little rough for fundamentalist Christian Americans. But there's more context there. He's talking about a broader history. Uh, but still, the soundbite just sounds like. Beatles are better than Jesus. Get over it. You know, uh, <laughs> so that that is part of what made people burn a lot of records. Can you imagine if that had happened today? It would be like hashtagging on Twitter, like John Lennon is over party. Hashtag <laughs> yeah. Canceled. yeah. All these people uh, making videos, burning their records. Like, I don't care about Beatles no more, man. You <laughs> but I mean, every record burnt is still a record sold. So, you know. <laughs> oh, you for, that yeah. Comfort. That's so that's always the funny irony with that. It's like, you, you might as well just burn money, stupid. Well, uh, on the 24th of March, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision in Harper versus the Virginia State Board of Elections. Uh, they declared poll taxes to be unconstitutional in elections at any level because they violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So basically saying you couldn't charge people to vote. Like, <laughs> that's pretty straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. since now we 19- just don't let them do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, we just <laughs> kind of cut straight to the chase now. Yeah. Um, But yeah, uh, since 1964, poll taxes had been barred for federal elections by the 24th Amendment, but this made it so it's like, no, like even for school board, you can't do this. By 1966, only Virginia, Texas, Alabama, and Mississippi still collected a poll tax. So Weird. They're all like kind of Southern. Um, Yeah. I'm sure it's just a (laughs) coincidence. Yeah. Uh, On the 26th of March, tens of thousands of anti-Vietnam War protesters took to the streets in dozens of American cities, including New York City, Chicago, Boston, Washington, San Francisco, Denver, Atlanta, Oklahoma City, and Hartford. And the next day in South Vietnam, 20,000 Buddhists marched in demonstrations against the policies of the military government. So there there was this uh, sort of protest thing going on. It was very popular then. But that that blew over and nobody ever protested again. Uh, Right. (laughs) It was kind of weird uh, looking at the numbers of the protests because, you know, they were saying like it was making headlines that 20,000 people 
uh, marched on the streets in New York City against the war in Vietnam. And I mean, nowadays you're like 20,000. That that feels like a nothing number for a protest. Um, yeah, that's like the warm up for a protest at this point. <laughs> that's an Ariana Grande show. We're talking, <laughs> you know, you, there are more of us now. In yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. But I, I think it was just such a there just weren't protests like that at that level. Yeah. Aside from that, that original American Revolution, I think, um, which was still not that big of numbers. They were right. just they were putting on some big PR stunts, but they were, uh, you know, with tea and whatnot. But they yeah. were uh, they had some live activations. <laughs> use all the uh, agency talk right now and totally bore everyone. What was their engagement like? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had to see what their KPIs were first, and then we can know what the engagement. Uh. <laughs> and I've just got one last uh, note here. On the 29th of March, 1966, the musical comedy It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman opened on Broadway. <laughs> Despite receiving three Tony Award nominations, the production would run for only 129 performances and close in July of the same year. So uh, that beats um, Spider-Man out of the dark or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I swear that the only reason Spider-Man lasted as long as it did on Broadway was because people were just buying tickets to see if someone would just come like catapulting off the stage and like fly 70 feet into the darkness or something. Just a wildly unreliable Cirque du Soleil. Well, like, can you imagine going to the Universal Studios Waterworld show and then they talk at you for a while? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not yeah. what people are into. No. Let's see some jumps, man. Come on. All right. So that's what was going on uh, in March of 1966 when uh, the funny books that we are going to be talking about were hitting the stands. Um, So we're going to take our first break of the episode. And then when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what the Avengers were up to this month. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. The first issue we're going to talk a little bit about is Avengers number 28, which was written by Stan Lee, art by Don Heck, uh, and inked by Frankie Ray, which is Frank Giacoya, working under a pen name. Uh, The title of the story is Among Us Walks a Goliath. So uh, one of the reasons uh, that we want to have Ibrahim on as a guest is because this month features the debut of The Collector. Um, he's basically the perfect comic book reader's comic book villain. Um, <laughs> like he's got no personality, no backstory, no motivation other than just collecting things. Um, and Ibrahim, you have uh, quite a collection of action figures that you have customized yourself, which uh, your Instagram feed is amazing. Oh, thank you. Uh, how did that all get going? Uh, I've always liked having a physical representation of a abstract thing that I like, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. you know, I was into Superman as a kid. I wanted like that little physical totem of Superman. Um, and then I'm also just really fascinated by small versions of larger things. <laughs> so, you know, when you, I mean, when you can put realism into a figure that is six inches tall, yes. you know, literally one twelfth the size of, of a person, but it looks real and approximates real life i'm just fascinated by the craft and art that goes into that so Mm -hmm. uh that and also you know in in that quest for you know totems of these things that i love there aren't often versions of the things that i like or or the the way that i would like it 
So right. for example, my very first one I made was of John Wick because there were no John Wick figures. Now there are 10 of them, but mm-hmm. you know, at the time <laughs> there were none. So um, yeah. And it's a fun, it's a fun kind of problem solving to do where you go, how do I make this thing out of, you know, so John Wick, I was like, Oh yeah, McFarlane made those really cool old matrix figures. They look exactly like the actors. So I got a Keanu Reeves one and I put a beard on him with clay <laughs> and molded hair and, found a suited body and et cetera. It's also the thing we keep hearing from every creator we talk to, which is I wanted something to be there in the world. I went and looked for it and it wasn't there. So I made it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the story behind lots of songs, comics, uh, even the, the Jack Kirby bio that, um, Tom Scioli is working on. Um, it's like, he's like, why wouldn't there be a comic book version of Jack's life? And yeah, that is kind of <laughs> silly when you think about it, that it doesn't exist. One of the things I really liked about how, like I was mentioning the collector, he has no backstory. He has no motivation. He's, but like, it totally feels like it was a very personal dig at a certain type of comic book fan. who Stan <laughs> had probably run into time and time again, where yeah. he just, he doesn't want to do anything with, what he's collecting he just wants to have it um mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah and just like stick it away somewhere um, that's a, a big part of the customization aspect of it for me too is like when you just you know a thing exists and you acquire it then you just have it and it's like all right well what next Die. right yeah but if i'm if i'm making it even if i'm just like swapping a head on it or or you know customizing a smaller bit of it i've i've put you know i have an experience tied to it at that point that for me makes it a little bit more enriching than just like cool acquired that you yeah. know yeah. so but yeah the the collector is very singularly focused with a very narrow uh scheme he just yeah. wants it all right yeah yeah and and he has such a terrible costume too uh, <laughs> uh it's like a brown oversized suit with like an orange sash belt and orange boots and orange gloves and then a gray cape i mean just doesn't do anything dazzling you know it's just not it seems so weird it's maybe like, collect yourself a new wardrobe am i right <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting you know i was thinking about this as i was reading these if they had had a larger array of colors at their disposal mm. what what these characters might have looked at or looked like today yeah you know you know like oh superman is the primary colors it's so iconic it's like well yeah but also you have a lot of options back then, you know. Right. You have like six sixty colors to work with that are gonna reproduce halfway decently. Right. And that's pretty yeah. much it. So we, we we got the collector, um, and you, you can tell he's a real collector because he hangs out with the Beatle and like the only reason you would hang out with the Beatles if you were trying to get a complete set. Like as far as Marvel <laughs> villains go, he's wow. I mean, like the bottom most tier. I like how uh, he kept Wasp in the packaging too. Oh yeah. Mint. Like she's in yeah. the jar or whatever. <laughs> yeah. At small size because that's more interesting too. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, he like he also likes small versions of uh, existing <laughs> oh, things. Oh no, so, yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a little bit of the collector in all of us. Um, but uh, unfortunately, this issue also includes the return of Henry Pym to the Avengers, um, <laughs> which is uh, a bummer. We we had a good what maybe almost year long run without uh, Henry Pym appearing in Marvel yeah. comics. And, For us, that was a, a four months or something with no Henry Pym. Ibrahim, luckily you don't have to, you know, 
have read all of those early giant man comics, mm-hmm. but Oh, they are horrible. You um, know, what's interesting to me. I haven't seen you guys since September, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So almost a year. Yeah. If I were to see you again now, like yeah. I am, I'm not asking anyone to do anything specific to prove that they are Bob or Brian. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. But in this, they're like, prove that you're Henry Pym. Get big for us. And he's like, oh, I don't know. It's unstable. And then they're like, kill the guy. Like, yeah. That, well, that's another like kind of recurring thing about early Avengers stories is like none of them trust each other. <laughs> There's yeah. really a lot of, yeah. I got to say, you know, as you guys know, this is the first time i've read comics from this era i think ever really it's really interesting to see what the evolution has been since then because you know for i mean my job you know for a living like i i have to figure out the most concise way to get this kind of information across right and and make it so that you're not hitting people over the head with it or being overly explanatory and then i read this and i'm just like oh wow i mean (laughs) they're they, they tell you things that like you don't even need like these these yellow captions that'll be at the top of the page it'll be just this aside that you're like yeah yeah like we got it yeah like, yeah. like this one and behind the mass of fallen rock <laughs> it's like, like where there's clearly a mass of fallen rock yeah, yeah, like, no, we got it we're looking at it thank you yeah yeah that's yeah. something we made jokes about with stan and his uh brother-in-law larry lieber they're like Stan it's guilty as anybody but you're like the the picture is worth a thousand words and you don't need to put another thousand over it <laughs> <Yeah>. man <laughs> uh, it's seriously especially the Kirby layouts they're like when he's doing it they're usually uh, there are some times when a page to page it just you're gonna like what the hell just happened but right. um, even then like in comics now when that happens that is intentional And that is to, you know, scene shift or bring in some mystery or um, (laughs) this stuff. It's just like see and say so much that it it's painful, even for a story this simple. And then also with Don Heck's um, art, which he's sort of the uh, I wouldn't say he's the worst of the bunch right now in the bullpen, but. Uh, he usually gets the the throwaway assignments. I gotta say, I the order I read these in went the Spider Man story and then this one. Mm-hmm. And with all due respect to Steve Ditko, man, that shit was rough. Like I, <laughs> yeah, oh, it was like his figures look like if you took a person shaped sheet and like did that thing where you shake, you know, <laughs> like like when you're trying to drape it over your bed when you're making your bed, you know, like yeah. you just have this like kind of like floppy sort of like a snuggie like parachuting down (laughs) from on high. Like, like they're, they're out in front of a tire store trying to sell you something. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Right. And so, so when I got to the Don Heck stuff, I was like, Oh, thank God. Like this, I mean, it was a big step up. Yes. Well, Heck stuff, I think works really, really well in individual panels. Like he, he has this really nice, like graphic layout, like really traditional style his his like panel to panel stuff can get confusing mm-hmm. whereas that's where i think well and and we'll talk about the spider-man uh stuff when we get there but like when when ditko's not about to take a walk from the company he's working for like he usually does a really good job of doing that that visual storytelling um in a way that's really consistent and makes a lot of sense but yeah um he was definitely just playing out the strings he's phoning <laughs> things point. in at this point yeah yeah uh, 
he's just about to break up with Stan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and real quick on the subject of, you know, how much writing Stan was doing. Oh yeah. Uh, it's funny when you see somebody's early comics work, like, you know, I get handed a lot of stuff from, you know, aspiring creators at shows and things like that. And usually you flip it open and it, you're just like, Whoa, like, it's just like walking into a hot, like parking lot from inside an air conditioned store. Like, <laughs> yeah. Get hit with all of these words and you can tell like they really value what they have to say and they're not letting the, they don't trust the art yet to, to do it for them sure. the way that it should. And so it, it was, it was interesting to see that that is an, an aspect of early creators, but also an aspect of early comics, you know, because I mean, these, I mean, it, with each one of these issues, I would get to like page six and be like, is this thing almost over? And then I look at it and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm yeah. I'm not even a quarter of the way through. Like what? Yeah. Uh, there, yeah, they are. There've only been a few big moments that seem like in fantastic four, we just went through the Galactus trilogy with silver surfer. And even those uh, they're all, they have wooden moments and over explained moments, but at least it's like this epic story. Yeah. Um, uh, but many of the times, yeah, I do the same thing. I'm like, I, this has got to be it. And then I look at the corner and it's page eight and it's uh, of the <laughs> 20 page. Book. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting too. You really, um, you can see the, the effect of the Marvel method on the page in a lot of ways. And, and chief among them is the lettering. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, nowadays when you're working on a comic, you have a script that you're working from, whether either, you know, like, nowadays I'm working for my own scripts, right? So I have it all, you know, I've written it. I know what's coming, but I still have it in front of me where I've got lines of dialogue and I know what I have to plan for and speaking orders of characters. You know, I have to make sure, you know, you you always want to have the character who speaks first on the left, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and so when these weren't pre-written beyond like a plot, and then you just have an artist going in and attacking it. And then <laughs> a writer coming in and filling it in later, you got stuff crossing each other. You, got, you know, everything's going all over the place. The letterer is doing things where it's like, you know, a balloon will, will form like a, a shape around another balloon, because, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. The letterers in the early Marvel days definitely earned whatever, yeah. small check they were getting whatever check that was not nearly large enough to be worth their time that yeah. martin goodman was allowing them to have yeah yeah and they were getting the you know the art whatever the last possible second before it needed to go to print to sure. yeah, yeah um yeah so uh oh yeah so uh in the issue uh henry pym returns he's going by goliath uh because Cap accidentally names him Goliath. So it's like, okay, I've got another superhero name, add him to the pile. And then <laughs> I love this. He's got a new costume uh, that the Scarlet Witch sewed him just in case he wound up coming back to the Avengers because <laughs> she's a lady and this is a 1966 Marvel comic. So of course she was just keeping herself busy by, you know, sewing outfits for non-active members of the team. Size changing non-active well, members of the team. Well, he left the stretchy fabric lane yeah. I mean, right yeah. Yeah, you know what else are you gonna do <laughs> um and he he comes back with a, a whole set of new limitations on his powers uh, as if that was the thing that was holding him back as a character um so <laughs> now he, he can he can only grow to exactly 25 feet tall he has to stay that way for exactly 15 minutes if he deviates from that it's going to put a huge strain on his body uh so guess what winds up happening before the end of the issue 
Oh, man. Well, um, let's go ahead and uh, turn the page. Rob, do you want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, X-Men this month? Hex, yeah. X-Men number 20. Um, this is written by Roy Thomas, art by Jay Gavin, who is Werner Roth with Dick Ayers, and it's called I, Lucifer. Which sounds like that should be a really awesome issue. When he first debuted, it was like, this is going to be an awesome villain. And it's just like, you knock off Magneto with a beard. Um, so the main plot line in this is, uh, what did we decide? Is it Eunice or Unis? I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna, I want to call him Unis the Untouchable. Uh, and the Blob are <laughs> dressing up in X-Men costumes and committing crimes. And just like, we're the X-Men. We're doing crimes. Hey, everybody. Uh, and it's it's a pretty good idea because the costumes, nobody knows what they really look like. And the public already, you know, fears and hates mutants. Uh, so... We've seen variations on the theme with Craven and Chameleon impersonating Spider-Man, but he's just one guy, uh, which is pretty easy, easy to tell when someone's impersonating him. Um, I, I don't know, though. I find it really hard to believe that um, you could convince uh, the public that uh, an entire group of people were uh, not to be trusted and you should you know, only really believe the worst of them. I, don't, I just don't feel like the public is that gullible to just... <laughs> paint an entire group of people with a broad brush <laughs> yeah uh, another wordy wordy comic by the way yes oh, yes oh they, my god they all are were um, they getting paid by the word like how what, what was no that's the thing is like i mean stan had to write all of these because uh the publisher wouldn't hire him other writers so it's like i don't know why he was being this wordy i feel like he was just making more work for himself when he already had too much work to be doing. He must have been a control freak, man. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every every page is just like there is as much text as there is art on these things. Oh yeah. So the big historical moment in the issue is the story of how Professor X lost the use of his legs. So it's sort of the uh, I think Jamie Wenger called it the origin of the wheelchair. The person responsible is Lucifer, who we saw several months ago when the X-Men and Avengers met for the first time. He looks like a guy. There's no other way to describe it. He's got a beard that sticks out of the bottom of his helmet, but otherwise it just looks like a, a Magneto knockoff. Um, yeah, I mean, he looks like sort of the knockoff action figures that you can find at the dollar yeah. store that are just like uh, the Revengers. Yeah, right. um, yeah, it's like the Z-Men. Um, and yeah, he so this like he's wearing the rough draft costume of Magneto. Like, like yep. you know in like a Spider-Man movie when he's like, like designing his costumes and he crumples it up and throws it on the yep. floor or whatever. <laughs> like, like that's what he's got on. Of yeah. Magneto. The first yeah. draft just with stuff he had yeah. in his closet. Um, yeah. It's like Magneto's like writing a little notes to himself in the margins. Like maybe I should shave. <laughs> question mark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it turns out Lucifer is an alien. Uh, of course. And he's the advanced scout for an invasion force, which at first I was like, maybe scrolls, but nope. Uh, Professor X, before he was a professor, so maybe Dr. X, uh, journeying to a walled city in Tibet where everyone seems to be under some sort of mental, mental domination, uh, Xavier makes plans with some local rebels to storm a castle, and he makes his way through several deadly traps, but when he meets Lucifer face-to-face, -face, Lucifer just pulls a switch and drops a huge stone slab on him because uh, <laughs> he's had that ready, just waiting for the right time to use it. Xavier survives, but his encounter with Lucifer is one of the reasons why he goes on to create the X-Men. Did he know that Xavier had 
psychic powers when he dropped that slab on him? I don't know. Because I don't think so. If he did, I'm like, well, all you did was uh, you didn't stop him from using the thing he would use to stop you. Like, <laughs> his you know powers. I mean? yeah. yeah. Like, he doesn't need his legs to read your mind and, you know, <laughs> all that stuff, right? Maybe yeah. he wasn't quite in the exact spot that, you know, the slab drops on. And he's only yeah. practiced the slab thing a couple of times because it, you know, takes a lot of work. Yeah, workers. you can only do, I mean, you don't have infinite <laughs> slab droppings. Yeah. You, know. <laughs> you got to bring in a whole crew every time you do it to get the slab back in right. the slab holder. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're going to go through all the trouble to put a slab in the ceiling, I mean, you're going to drop it. Like, that's the whole point. If someone breaks into your place. Yeah. That's the wrong pizza slab drop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, then you got to get your friends over to come over and help you move it. And you, you get, or you order pizza for them. To, like, <laughs> like pretty soon they're not going to want to do this for you anymore, man. Yeah. I also, uh, this was another issue where, where I was much more impressed by the art. Yeah. Yeah. Werner Roth, who's going by Jay Gavin, when he just started doing X-Men a, a few issues ago and, you know, Kirby was doing it before, but I was really uh, impressed. Yeah. What was with the pen names? Like, was that just a... Pretty much everyone who's working under a pen name is also working for DC at the time. Uh, um, okay. And so it was kind of funny. It's like everyone believed that if you were caught working for both companies, you'd get fired from DC. Like Marvel obviously knew, you know, that their guys were working for DC. Right. Because they were poaching them from DC. But then... Uh, in a couple of years, Neil Adams um, winds up coming over to Marvel and, and doing something. I think he winds up drawing X-Men. Um, and he's like, I'm not going to use a pen name. And DC is like, okay. And it just basically <laughs> yeah. called everyone's bluff. Everybody so. stopped trying to hide it. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's interesting to to hear that he came over, this guy came over from DC. Cause I do see some Kurt Swan in his mm-hmm. faces mm-hmm. a little bit, especially the way he draws professor X. So I wonder yes. if a byproduct of that. Yeah, probably. And DC had a very established house style at that point too. Mm-hmm. So it's like, try. you have to probably try to break out of it if you've been doing it for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Um, well, I would like to talk a little bit about Dr. Strange, if that's okay. Strange Tales 145, uh, which was written by Denny O'Neill uh, and art by Steve Ditko. This is Denny O'Neill's first Marvel comic script ever. Um, it's the first thing he did. I think it's his first comic book script ever. Um, the first thing he did. Um, it's also one of Steve Ditko's last Doctor Strange stories. I assume probably most of the folks listening uh, are familiar with Denny O'Neill. Um, he was a giant of the industry, uh, and he, you know, he spent like more than three decades um, in the comics business. He was a writer. He was an editor. He was born the same year as Batman. um, And he wound up being the group editor for the Batman line for DC um, in the nineties. Probably the thing he's known for best is the run he had on Green Lantern, Green Arrow uh, in the seventies with Neil Adams. And they just very overtly championed uh, progressive positions on racial equity and, drug abuse and gender equality and all sorts of topics. He's just a a real good dude. And he also left a huge mark on Marvel Comics. Um, He scripted Amazing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, uh, Uncanny X-Men. He put James Rhodes in the Iron Man armor for the first time. He brought Frank Miller into Daredevil, and then he mentored him as a writer. And here's my favorite Denny O'Neill fact. Um, When Hasbro approached Marvel to help them package up a Japanese toy line of robots that disguise themselves as vehicles, (laughs) Denny was the one who decided the leader of the good guys should be named Optimus Prime. So 
There you go. Denny fact. And yeah, we lost him in June of this year, um, unfortunately, just a couple of weeks before we lost Joe Sinnott. Um, and that was just a really crappy one-two punch, as if like 2020 hadn't kicked enough dirt in our faces. Like, right. yeah. Losing those two guys like one after the other was just, that was very rough. Yeah, I only learned the the Transformers thing recently because from um, the toys that made us on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's where I learned it too, yeah. yeah. I have uh, another uh, Transformers-related anecdote that ties into this issue. Um, so I'm reading a Steve Ditko biography right now. Um, it's called uh, Strange and Stranger, The World of Steve Ditko, written by uh, Blake Bell. And um, he's talking about how uh, by the time the 80s had rolled around, Ditko professionally was like maybe at the lowest point of his entire career. Um, he was not really working Um you know, obviously the, the times had kind of passed him by. Um, and he had also just developed such a bad taste in his mouth for both Marvel and DC and pretty much anyone he had worked for, um, (laughs) for reasons. But so he, he had come back to Marvel and he was, you know, seeing if there was an opportunity to do some work, uh, but he didn't want to work for the comics division at all. So the, someone there was like, well, we're doing coloring books uh licensed coloring books and so steve ditko illustrated a transformers coloring book oh wow um which i found on the internet last night and i have coming to my house so (laughs) i can't wait to check this out that's one of those like you buy it without question items oh absolutely (laughs) like you found it yeah coming you know yeah yeah so uh so Denny wrote this Doctor Strange issue, Steve Ditko illustrated. It was one of the few um, Doctor Strange issues that Ditko didn't plot um, because uh-huh. uh, uh, he was basically about to leave Marvel um, and he was kind of phoning it in. But uh, this is not the the last time that Denny and Steve uh, would work together. This is an interesting little story. So when Ditko wound up at DC Comics in the late 1960s, um, he created a bunch of characters. One of them was the Creeper. And so he uh, Ditko plotted and drew Meet the Creeper, uh, but Denny O'Neill wrote all the dialogue. And you know, if you know anything about either of these guys, like their politics could not have been further <laughs> apart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and, and Denny's dialogue often undercut what Steve Ditko is trying to do in the plots. So there's a, a quote from Dick Giordano in that biography I just mentioned, where he recalled the breaking point in their collaboration. And uh, Giordano said that Denny had written a script of Beware the Creeper, and he wrote something about the character, this character who was described as an ex-criminal. Steve jotted down a very bold note on the script that there was no such thing as an ex-criminal. Once you've committed a crime, you're a criminal for life. Wow. Denny and Steve couldn't work together anymore. It had nothing to do with me, and I could no longer be the referee. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Um, This, you know, as far as stories go, um, it's... It's a pretty by the numbers little, you know, Doctor Strange magic battle um, against, you know, his adversary of the month, whose name is Mr. Rasputin, which I just find to be like one of the funniest names of any supervillain in Marvel (laughs) Comics ever. It's not even a doctor. (laughs) It's just a Mr. It's not a Lord. You know, there's nothing. Professor Rasputin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty forgettable. It's like a Baron Mordo replacement guy. But there and there is some he's like a some descendant of Rasputin. Yeah, um, there's some family tie there. I think my favorite thing about the story, though, is that so they're getting into this magic battle. Mr. Rasputin realizes he's totally outclassed. So he just pulls out a pistol and shoots. Dr. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
that beats magic. You know, if you're going to get into that. Yeah. In the, in the rock, paper, scissors match of (laughs) like you got the Dr. Strange hands and then like rock and then the gun. Yeah. (laughs) Gun wins. Just that's how it goes. I really, I liked the art in this one a lot. Yeah. This is where Ditko shines a lot more. Yeah. Like either, I mean, would he have drawn this around the same time as that Spider-Man issue? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same month. So he clearly just didn't give a shit about Spider-Man. No, (laughs) I think he'd gotten to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cause this, this was much stronger art. I thought it's cool to see him do some of his sort of patented Ditko designy stuff you know yeah. with the magic and the weird like magic spiral yeah. things yeah yeah panel nine on page two the, at the bottom right corner like the the close-up shot of of rasputin doing the like hand gesture that's really well drawn i like the those hands a lot um you know it's still kind of stylized in that like marvel comics way but it has like a, a really nice sort of like gesture to it yeah mm-hmm. um one thing that really stuck out to me was i think the doctor who attends to uh, Strange after he's been shot is supposed yeah. to be a black man. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And a, it's the first instance of a black person in any of these. Yep. And I mean, of, of this slate that, that we read for this week. Yeah. Uh, I I may have missed one, but I mean, this was the first I noticed. And then B, like the way that he like signals to the colorist or the color separator or whatever that this is a a, a black man is he just drew a bunch of lines over his face. <laughs> yes. You yeah. know, he shaded like, yeah. him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it tells you a couple things. Number one, like it's so rare that you have to really indicate it. And yes. two, uh, they don't, I mean, I shouldn't speak for all of them. Ditko didn't apparently know how to draw a black person. And so they would, the color artist wouldn't know that this guy's supposed to be black unless you right. put a bunch of lines over him. <laughs> right, right. Look like a black, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. just, that's still, and, and I bring that up in part to say that that's still an issue in comics today. A lot of artists will draw, you know, a black person to just look like a white person. And yeah. Then, yeah. Know, or like whatever the, they look like, you know? That, yeah. Yeah. Like they're, you know, they, a lot of artists don't pay enough attention to like the phenotypical differences of, ethnicities you know yeah, yeah. like different mm-hmm. facial structures and and features and things like that so it's interesting to see that you know what 70 years later how, how far, <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 i did like that this character was you know a doctor with yeah. no yeah, mention at cool. all of that and i feel like that was very intentional the only other black guy who shows up in comics at this point is gabriel jones with the agents of shield and howling commandos uh, and he's he's always gray, like yeah. just he's as gray yeah. As that's the, the thing. This guy is like a like a greenish gray in this coloring too. It just goes to show, like the it's exactly what you were talking about, Ibrahim. Like artists and colorists had so little experience drawing black characters into comics. Like mm-hmm. it was really, I mean, we probably read what Rob like a year and a half, two years worth of Marvel comics before you even started seeing incidental black characters in the background. Yeah, yeah. like even on a street scene. In yeah. New York, which yeah. is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Which, is, like I say, is still an issue today. And that's something I always try really hard to make sure that I'm, you know, making crowds that are representative of, you know, not even just different ethnicities, but different shapes and sizes. You yeah. Know? Um, and those, I mean, I think a lot of artists will tell you 
uh, I don't want to speak for everybody, but those are a lot of times the, the more fun things to draw are like the, the character actor type of people in the background yeah. rather than mm-hmm. just like the boring middle of the road, like stars of it. You know? Right. right. <laughs> so, the, the athletic folk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You yeah. get a little bendier, a little, a little more, you know, expressive and stuff, but yeah. But yeah, these were also, man, just super dense pages. Like, yep. It, you know, I forgot how many panels they put into these things. Too. <laughs> I know. Like, yeah, and and I think that that was why uh, Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore had so many, you know, did did Watchmen in that style, style of nine yeah. panel grid because it was like, you know, a throwback to the old Charlton or Charleston characters or whatever. And mm-hmm. yeah, Charlton, yeah, Charlton. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting to see the seeds of that still popping up today. I know Tom King has been known for writing those into comics a lot nine panel grids oh yeah mm-hmm. you know his I, I heard him say in an interview like well alan moore did it so and he's the best comics writer so why wouldn't i do it you know? <laughs> i can tell you why you shouldn't right but, you, know, <laughs> um, you know but uh yeah it's funny because anytime you you see or listen to an interview with with the guys who were the pioneers of this stuff it's always a kind of yeah, we didn't know what we were doing you know yeah. we were just doing it and now and now everybody does it, right? Because they did it. Right, and right. <laughs> it's interesting to see how it's kind of like when your parents like screw you up because they were just doing some stupid thing. That, like, <laughs> Their parents you know, did. Yeah. yeah yep. <laughs> they think, like, well, I didn't think I would, you know, follow you into adulthood, you know? <laughs> right. And I think that we see a lot of that in the DNA of these comics, like, like things that they weren't doing for a specific reason other than they just didn't have another way or know any better or whatever. Right. Yeah. That's a pretty good space uh, place to stop for, for Doctor Strange. Um, yeah, you know we know this is this is uh, Ditko on his way out, but um, let's take a quick break and we will come back and talk about Spider Man uh, here on Marvel by the Month. <laughs> Okay, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, we are going to talk about Steve Ditko's second-to-last issue of Amazing Spider-Man. This is number 37, written by Stan Lee, plot and art by Steve Ditko. Uh, man, the title of this just tells you uh, how much it has been phoned in. Once Upon a Time, There Was a Robot is the name <laughs> of the story. Um, and the splash page is just a kind of bored-looking Peter Parker and the caption says, we hate to brag, but this one's a doozy. It's interesting. The title page is a better cover than the actual cover to this issue. Yeah. 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 The, the cover has, I mean, it's Spider-Man fighting this like blobby looking robot thing in a bunch of fire and uh, and like a kind of a very generic humanoid robot with no background whatsoever. Yeah, in a boring tile, empty room. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> It doesn't look like it was finished. It just looks like Ditko decided to stop drawing and then kind of sent it <laughs> off, and that was that. Yeah, another thing that stuck out to me here is is the, in the credits page, edited and written by Stan Lee. Uh, that's kind of like a shampoo and conditioner, two-in-one. <laughs> like, they don't both do the same thing. That's... You know, you can't and, – and it doesn't actually condition. Like, I don't, I don't think he edited any of this, right? Like, <laughs> This would have benefited from an editor. Yeah. <laughs> no disrespect to, to the departed. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it, I mean, at this point, Ditko was literally just dropping off finished Spider-Man pages. Not to Stan directly, even. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, like dropping him off at the office and taking off, and then Stan would just like take run it. by the door of like the building and just like yeah, drop for it. the pages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, so so you can tell, like you know, Ditko's he, he's he's had his fill pretty much. Um, the the last really great uh, Spider-Man story that he did uh, it was the Master Planner storyline that got wrapped up four months ago. Um, he hasn't created a new original supervillain who would wind up being a recurring villain um, for like nine months, um, and that was the Molten Man, which is not exactly <laughs> an A-list villain. Um, like you'd have to go back a year and a half. Uh, to when the scorpion was first introduced to find like the last time Ditko was actually creating these characters that stood the test of time. Um, yeah. Almost every villain he started with did, uh, you know, each month was a villain. That yeah. Is Dr. Octopus, the vulture, you know, uh, just villains that are still around. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the a plot of this issue is more of the same. The, the villains, a guy named professor Strom, he creates a series of killer robots. Um, and they're, kind of interesting looking some of them but they're definitely disposable bad guys and strom doesn't even survive the issue so ditko is clearly not creating any more intellectual property for marvel to leverage after he leaves (laughs) (laughs) so it's like i'm done spidey isn't the even the target of strom's robots it's norman osborne so that's where it gets kind of interesting because we're finally talking more about this mysterious norman osborne and it's the first time he's been named as a character uh he shows up He's barely spoken <laughs> at all at this point. He's been in a background character at the, you know, fancy capitalist club that J. Jonah Jameson hangs out at. Um, but now we learn that he stole Strom's inventions and sent him to jail. Uh, and that's why Strom's threatening him. And it's very Ditko. Um, it's a looter who steals the hard work of a producer in the Randian terms. Yeah. This is literally how Ditko was feeling about Stanley and Marvel at this point too, where he's like, you know, here's, here's the wealthy successful guy um, who everyone looks up to and respects. And, you know, he's just stolen the hard work of the people who, you know, who, who actually have the genius. Um, So that was even the sentiment back then. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. That's kind of the theory that Ditko created J. Jonah Jameson to represent Stan Lee. Oh. So he's like the big talker, the, um, you know, all bluster and then Peter's doing, you know, hard work and everybody else is working hard and he's benefiting from that and taking all the credit. Yeah. Okay. And he's, he's spinning his version of the truth and yeah. Yeah. Wow. I know. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's, this it's, recontextualizes it like crazy. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah and it. we really are finding out more about this as we read bios and go through this, this sometimes as you might guess, grueling process of reading all of these superhero comics from, yeah. from fantastic. Four. <laughs> man, um, this, yeah. They're dense. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, these guys do this every week. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I barely read other things at this point, just because uh, I, it takes a while to get through these and to try to like, remember sometimes it's just so you're like, okay, Titanium man still fighting Iron Man. Do I, do I really need to pay attention to this? But I try to read <laughs> yeah. and try to look at each panel and, you know, have something to bring to this, but it's, yeah. it's there's so many words. It's interesting to know that he was on his way out because that makes a lot more sense based on these visuals, you know, like yeah. I've yeah. drawn comics that I was over it <laughs> while drawing and uh, so I know the feeling when it's like 
it's it's tough it's a slog to get through when you're like this has not been a good collaboration or whatever i'm I'm happy with the person on the other side of this thing and now i still gotta get through it yeah you know i'm obligated to deliver these pages yeah Uh, how oh that was another question um who did you hate working with the most (laughs) no (laughs) (laughs) yeah no uh how long on average does it take for you to do a page uh it depends on the book. I mean, I, you know, also I've kind of changed up my inking style to where I'm doing some washes, which is mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't go to town like fully painting a page in gray tones or anything, but basically I'll use it to kind of separate foreground and background elements or like, you know, put a shadow on something or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that adds a little bit more time. It's not super time intensive, but what you want to hit is like a page a day or like, five four to five pages a week is kind mm-hmm. of like what you go what you aim for you know th- that book count that i mentioned that was my first time doing a graphic novel mm-hmm. like beginning to end without you know issues coming out monthly so um and i did uh, it was 120 pages so the equivalent of six issues and mm-hmm. i did it in seven months now that was like pedal to the floor for pretty much that entire time i mean from from early to mid December to mid April, I had probably three days off to, you know, I mean, there were definitely days off I had, but it was like, well, I have appointments and errands to run. Like I'm talking like personal days where I got to like work on an action figure or just like <laughs> right. hang out with my wife or whatever, you know? Right. Yeah. So I can imagine, I mean, if you're, if you're on your way out and you know, you're drawing robots and all kinds of crazy stuff like this, like, man, that, I feel for it. Yeah. (laughs) Just trying to get the rent paid, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and also, I mean, I think by this point, Ditko cared a lot more about all the Spider-Man stuff where Spider-Man doesn't appear in it. He is way more interested in what Peter Parker is doing and like what the supporting cast is doing than he is with just like superhero tomfoolery. Like the high school intrigue um, of Gwen Stacy being upset about, Speaking of you guys, Gwen Stacy looks like a wharf in this <laughs> issue. Yeah, she's straight up like angry Klingon battle cry. Her barrettes and her eyebrows going way up the way they are does just, does make her forehead look yeah. a little like a Star Trek prosthetic. It's funny, like when she first showed up uh, a few issues ago, it's like that's when I realized it's like, oh, all of my memories of Gwen Stacy are when John Ramita draws her. Like mm-hmm. I, I was going to ask, does, does Ramita take over after yeah. this? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Stan's got him on Daredevil right now, getting up to speed. And then he's going to move first, him in. First, yeah, like last month he did okay. his first yeah, his debut first on Daredevil. Yeah. yeah. Was he one of those guys who like doesn't like women or whatever? I don't think so. Because <laughs> she's these barrettes look like devil horns. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. I don't know that there was a specific misogynistic weird you know thing with him um a lot of people are a lot of guys are bad at drawing women right yeah 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 well that and i mean (laughs) i guess it it wouldn't shock me to find out that you know the comic book guy with strange beliefs also has an issue with women but i i I mean i've I've we don't have anything to verify no i mean i'm almost all the way through this dicko biography like i was saying and like nothing like that has come up so far like he doesn't you know, um, doesn't appear to have any hidden axe to grind or anything. Yeah. So, yeah. 
I did have a kind of a um, Killmonger moment while I was reading this, where I was just like, "Is this your king? Like this is who you, <laughs> like you know what I mean? Because he's so revered, yeah. and like I get it. You know, I get that he was like a pioneer and stuff, but." You know, it's interesting. I mean, look at the work Wally Wood was doing at the same time, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, or even like Kirby. I just, like, we knew what people looked like back then. Right. You right. know what I mean? It's, like, I, yeah. there were still like good artistic depictions of people. So it's just weird to me. I, I mean, I know these guys were cranking this stuff out. Yeah. And, yeah. and now obviously I'm learning that he was not into it. But I just feel like yeah, maybe what it is is, um, if I had to rush something, mm-hmm. I, I guess I would be forced to choose between, do you do you turn in like well, like well or accurately drawn, sort of, but rough, right, or not super well drawn but finished, right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. And I feel like this is the latter. <laughs> yeah. like, it's finished, yeah. you know. Just to put it on context, this is a bad issue of Spider-Man. Like this, this <laughs> yeah. is like the earlier stuff that Ditko was doing was great, and he also um, so he had already like he was not going to spend any time in the water. He had already jumped into another boat. He was drawing uh, Captain Adam for Charlton at this point. Like he had oh, three, okay. he had three issues of that done before he finished up at Marvel. So like he's, I mean, this looks rushed and sloppy because. It, it is, is rushed and sloppy. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, he's doing work for other people at this point. So. Okay, that's that's good to know. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, this yeah. is a crash course, man. I'm loving this. This is uh, what I always say. I'm like accidentally becoming a comics historian. Yeah. Just, I thought <laughs> yeah, we were just right. making like a funny book club for right. a nerdy lark. <laughs> um, oh yeah, the other thing uh, in this issue. So uh, not only do we learn that Norman Osborn has a name and is a jerk. We also basically learn that he's the worst dad ever. Um, so we find out that he's the dad of uh, Peter Parker's new college classmate, Harry Osborne. Uh, the first panel showing the two of them together, um, Norman says, none of your blasted business to Harry. And then in the second panel, he says, Harry, don't you ever shut up? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's like real dad of the year quality. Um, yeah. It's just ridiculous. And he wears a green suit, which seems like foreshadowing, uh, but it might not have even been <laughs> because who knows what they're thinking at this point. Um, yeah. Uh, Ditko always claimed that he decided that Norman was the goblin even before the first Green Goblin story was finished. Um, and he had been seating him in the background scenes. That to, makes more sense. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. It does yeah. make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the ending of this story is so uh, talking about like how a lot of this stuff is not particularly highbrow, um, like a lot of that you can pin on the comics code, you know, um, sure. like writers and artists had to work under ridiculous constraints, um, which we've talked about. But um, the ending of this story in particular is some comics code nonsense. So clearly what's happening here is that Norman Osborn shoots and kills Professor Strom through an open window with a hunting rifle as Spidey's uh-huh. trying to push him out of the way. But what the word balloons say is that Strom had a heart attack and he apparently was just like scared to death by someone threatening to shoot him. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that was either Marvel decided to tone it down or, or change the meaning of it because they knew it wouldn't get through the code or the code was just like, no, you gotta, you can't have <laughs> someone just murder someone. Well, that's uh, Steve Ditko's penultimate Spider-Man issue. Um, So we'll take a break. Um, We'll come back and talk about Fantastic Four, one of the most famous Fantastic Four stories, I think. Um, So, yeah, uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back here on Marvel by the Month. (laughs) 
back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, let's get into Fantastic Four number 51. This one's written by Stan Lee, art by Jack Kirby, with Joe Sinnott inking. It's called This Man, This Monster. And we have a nice big Ben Grimm on the cover and in a big splash page with Ben Grimm. Like it goes from almost the same size from the cover to the interior splash page with Ben yep. just getting standing in the rain looking really sad. I love <laughs> I love that opening splash page. It's yeah. one of my favorite Ben Grimm's. It's the bummed, bummed Ben. Um, so over the last seven issues, we've seen the first appearance of the Inhumans, Galactus, and the Silver Surfer. And this is like a nice little palate cleanser. It's one of the most famous FF stories, definitely one of the most famous titles. Clint McElroy's favorite FF issue when we talked to him about it. I had definitely read this before, but I don't know where I had read it. It was familiar to me. This was I, the only Fantastic Four I've ever read was Ultimate ff when Stuart Eminen was drawing it and i bought it specifically for the art so this was my first uh like 616 fantastic four story and this might have been my first like fully drawn by jack kirby complete issue that i've it's a good one man i mean you know coming up you hear about kirby and and people worship at the altar of him and you know he's jack the king kirby and it was so cool to see why. Like, I mean, I've seen, you know, obviously, you know, like I've seen his stuff. It's ubiquitous in comics. And I certainly learned to appreciate his stuff more as I got, as, as I grew as an artist, you know, because mm-hmm. I, like, I don't think you, well, I guess for some people they do, but I didn't, I never saw his stuff and was like, yeah, because mostly what you see is like just the big hands reaching out at you. And that just the extreme really, foreshortening. Yeah. 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 It never really did much for me, but to see his storytelling and like just his figure work, and you know, just a dude in a in a in a in shirt sleeves and a in slacks and a tie, like mm-hmm. that's what I want to see. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> and to have that in the same panel as the thing, like, and the way that he blocked out the shadows on the different you know rock formations of of Ben Grimm and stuff, like I really re- and and the tech, you know, when when uh, the, the what I can't remember the ball guy's name, but when he opens that closet and he's just got this elaborate like Kirby tech inside his closet, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. his duplication apparatus. Man, this was this was a visual treat for sure. Yeah, the um, so what we're talking about too, the premise of this is basically there's a guy who, um, I, can't, I already forgot his name too. <laughs> you never learned his name. Oh, it's a guy with a really big, weird yeah. forehead yeah. Um, who's bald and he has made this duplication apparatus. So he's trying to capture the thing. He's been like subtly impacting his thoughts to draw him there. Yep. Uh, and he is, he's able to take his power and become him. But when uh, the becoming process makes Ben Grimm turn back into normal Ben yep. uh, and he turns into the thing. And then, you know, starts to learn his accent to impersonate him. <laughs> yeah. So he's the fake thing impersonating him um, so convincingly that Reed and Sue believe that that's been that's the thing. And even though Ben Grimm walks in and they knew him as a human, too, and they should have recognized him, <laughs> but they do not. Uh, they believe that the orange guy is Ben. Like they're going to take yeah. that guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, I mean, Reed literally like was college roommates with human Ben Grimm and he's still like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just a totally different story than what we've gone through. Uh, the, the other piece is that um, Ben uh, Ben's very upset because he thinks silver surfers moving in on his girl. 
That's like a you know you remember that meme like you versus the guy she tells you not to worry about. Like <laughs> imagine one of those being Ben Grimm, the other one being Norrin Rad, the hair. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, she's she's got a pretty high bar for her her, her exes. Uh, and yeah. yeah. And and it's been misunderstanding the situation, but she she's really trying to just help the Silver Surfer still, but he it's this sort of like Peter Parker problem where he's running away before he hears her real thoughts and feelings for him. So he's just bummed. And now he's been, uh, totally faked duplicated and he's human, which he's normally very happy about. Um, but he's currently really puzzled because somebody's faking to be him. Well, you know, you got to figure he's got significant PTSD from turning into this craggy rock monster yeah oh yeah and on top of that he's already like a poster child for toxic masculinity right like (laughs) his whole thing is like it's clobber and like it'll just beat the problems away you know (laughs) and now like what is he supposed to do this this cosmic being has crashed and literally crashed his girl's pad yeah and now he's not even the 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 thing anymore like and his friends don't even recognize him yeah yeah like oh He's lost everything. Yeah, it's yeah. A tough guy. And Johnny's not even around in this issue for him to like do whatever they yeah, do. Yeah, their normal it's, uh, brother fights, whatever you call it. Yeah. yeah, but we do see this is another thing we were talking about the crazy Kirby machine. Yeah, um, that Reed is building. Yeah, it's like a full page of what looks like uh, a bunch of robot pieces in hydro tubes it's just like uh it looks like a it looks like a water slide at like a sci-fi theme park especially the bottom i really did yeah. like this looks like it'd be pretty fun and it's the subspace radical cube this is what <laughs> it's a cool name from reed um reed's been fever feverishly working on it because it's supposed to protect them protect earth really from these galactic level beings that can travel that can break the space-time barrier and travel pretty much anywhere very quickly so he's trying to do the same right because galactus has just come to earth and i mean they they drove him off but it wasn't because of anything the fantastic four figured out it's like the watcher basically told them there's a deus ex machina device like in a distant galaxy i'm gonna send the human torch there he's gonna come back with it it freaks galactus out he leaves so it's like they they won but i mean not because of anything they did so now reed is like oh man there's stuff like this floating out there in the universe and we need to be able to figure out a way to deal with it. So yeah. 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 On the splash page with that radical cube, it says at the top and then they enter the locked room where they find. And that's another (laughs) example of that. Like, yeah, we're in the room now, dude, we got it. (laughs) We know we're in the room because we can see it. And, Reed is tethered and jumps through this thing because that's how Reed tests his work. I'm just going to dive in. Yeah. I got a string here. You hold <laughs> on to the string and yeah. uh, we should be cool, right? Um, yeah, it's he's basically made a TARDIS um, and he's <laughs> just going to try it out. Um, yeah. So fake thing is holding the other end of this and, and the fake thing who's been impersonating Ben Grimm, he starts to realize something's wrong with Reed on the other side and he's not pulling him back because he's like, I can get rid of Reed if I just don't pull him back because his his whole motivation is that he thinks that reed has just gotten all the breaks and he's gotten lucky and he believes that he is reed's superior and so he's going to take reed out of the picture he's going to take the fantastic four out of the picture so that he can enjoy all the success that he believes he deserves he it turns out he realizes how that reed is actually uh way smarter than him for one and uh (laughs) and you know 
means very well. And it's like, he's not, he's doing these things not for the fame. He's doing them to try to protect and save humanity. Yeah. So he has a change of heart and really starts to behave more like the real Ben, but a a little late. Like it's like possible that you were still going to lose Reed in this mess. He does start trying to pull Reed back, but the cable snaps. So he just jumps in <laughs> to the radical cube too, uh, which is a very Bangram thing to do. He catches up with Reed. He said, Reed says, "There's nothing they can do to save themselves. It's they're they're done." You, you, he never wanted Ben to sacrifice himself. And just before the end, he tells him, "You were the greatest partner a man ever had," and shakes his hand. Um, that's when Fake Thing decides they don't both have to die, and he grabs Reed and with you know, expert marksmanship throws him back towards the radical cube doorway, saving his life at the cost of his own. So yeah. it's a big arc for this character. You barely know. Yeah. Uh, it's gone from, from just, you know, weird looking villain to uh, a very heroic and self-sacrificing move at the end. Yeah. And right before he throws him, like the, the whole thing is that, Reed has somehow entered into this like parallel. Uh, is he like, this isn't the negative zone or whatever, is it? This is no, I think he calls it subspace. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And well, first of all, on page 14, there's this really cool, like one the of those collage. Kirby collages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that, I mean, you know, when I was talking about this sort of evolution of comic art and how it's changed, like, this when I got to this, I was like, "Oh, okay, this is when it was happening." Like this yeah, is, yeah, you're you're witnessing those evolutionary changes in this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, just the 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 figure of Reed floating in front of this collage too, like it's such a well drawn anatomical person, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, Kurt, like I, he was really. He was that dude, man. It's it's crazy to see. Like, and then one of the things I love too is after he throws, after Ben throws Reed, you know, and is like, "Well, I hope, I hope I got, I hope he <laughs> threw him toward the exit." Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's this awesome panel of him just sitting on this like asteroid space rock thing that is hurtling towards Earth, and he's just like, you know, cupping his knees, like just kind of like going along for the ride. And yep. you know, after he's realized. You know, he's completed this self-actualization arc in <laughs> yeah. just a few pages. It just and it's and this specific panel is right at the center of this page. I mean, I just loved it. It's one of the. It's a perfect panel. It's one of the best illustrations in this book too. It was really, really good. Yeah, that that panel reminded me a lot of the concrete comic uh just because it was this yeah. big character mm. that has so much emotion um yeah there's also a really iconic um adam hughes supergirl cover where she's kind of pinup girl like sitting all cute on this asteroid as it's like burning up on re-entry and it reminded me a lot of that too um and just to wrap up the those plot points it's like the other subplots are Ben is going to Alicia's apartment because he's not, he's, you know, the fantastic four doesn't believe that he's Ben he's in human form. And as he knocks and as the fake thing dies in the other universe, Ben changes back into the thing, <laughs> which, so he just runs yeah. away. Cause he's, he's been through these ups and downs a few times already. And it's just tragic either way. He's, he's now starting to be like, I'm going to see Alicia. I'm going to be human. This is going to be great. And then, of course, right then the yep. 
he changes back. He's so bummed. Uh, and then Johnny Storm is at the Cozy Campus Coffee Shop. Uh, that's weird that they all also start with K's. Um, mm, yeah, let's not read too much into that. Uh, or, I mean, maybe we should because Johnny and his oh, college roommate, shit. Wyatt Wingfoot, uh, have a run-in with the campus heel, uh, who's a quarterback named Whitey Mullins. <laughs> so, oh wow, I didn't even catch. So that. this is Johnny and his Native American friend. Um, yeah, who are getting hassled by a guy named Whitey in um, the cozy campus coffee shop. Um, again, yeah. all K's. On and then those. they fight a guy named Grand Wizard, and it's like. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's like uh, on one hand having a character named Whitey just really dates this story because yeah. you know it's been a while since you could kind of get away with that as a nickname. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, having the guy named Whitey act like an entitled bully makes it feel very timely. Right. <laughs> so it's like everything old is new again. Um, but yeah. Um, and I guess this is the attempt to give Johnny a little bit of like Peter Parker style college rivalry and intrigue yeah in that's his, his slash yeah. thompson um yeah basically so yeah <laughs> the guy he can't beat up because he would kill him if he did they also know he's johnny storm right oh yeah he doesn't have a secret identity so yeah. like i that always that always made me go like wait if you know like this guy could burn you with a thought like right. burn yeah. to death. <laughs> like why would you antagonize him like yeah it's, you it's can't always, override your bully instinct, I guess. Yeah, you know, you just, right? <laughs> you're just, well, I guess when your name is Whitey Mullins, you're just kind of harebrained and like, you, you can't really you think through that. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, but man, it, this, this whole story, like it takes you on such a trip in just 20 pages. Like, and it's also, it, it's a totally self-contained story in the middle of like what have been like huge multi-part stories. So it is just this kind of like, you're catching your breath from all these crazy cosmic adventures. Um, there's only like eight characters in the entire story. Mm-hmm. So it's just, uh, it's really great. Yeah. They're still putting their time and they're putting their biggest effort into this book. This is still the, the linchpin of, of Marvel at this point. Yeah. I mean, coming up in comics, you hear about Kirby and Lee's fantastic four, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And having never read any of it, it was cool to see this and go like, Oh, I get it. I, I see <laughs> yeah. why. You know, like, because I imagine in 1966, this was like the cutting edge, you know, and there's some big ideas in it, you know, like, and and you, you, yeah. So, and I guess, you know, this is kind of like Star Trek level morality tales and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, this is definitely the, the best of the bunch for my personal take on it. Well, so uh, I think that means uh, the only thing left for us to do, um, what we do at the end of every, every episode is just pick out a panel uh, that stuck out to us after reading um, the issues. So um, I am I, I will go first, uh, okay. and then Rob, if you've got one lined up. But um, yeah. yeah, my uh, my panel of the month. Um, it's sort of an anti-panel of the month, kind of. Uh, but it <laughs> it did make it was the thing I thought most about after uh, I read it. So uh, it's in Avengers number twenty-eight. It's page eleven, panel one. So. The Avengers are all chasing after the collector um, and Goliath is stuck at his 25 foot size (laughs) because of dumb limitations. Um, And uh, so as everyone else is just doing their jobs, uh, Hank Pym is like, he's stuck in a stone archway and he's like trying to squeeze through it like a big dumb (laughs) idiot. (laughs) It's just like, it's just like, it just summed up everything that is just like, man, 
like no matter what they ever tried with this character, it never really worked yeah. in the sixties. Like there's eventually there, there wind up being a few halfway decent, like Henry Pym stories, but they just, it took them so long to do anything with this character. And honestly, they really should have just cut their losses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think Kirby would have agreed, especially with Ant-Man, but um, yeah, well uh, for me, I, I was going to pick, but I have a feeling that this would be what Ibrahim would, would pick too. It's uh, the page 14 from fantastic four. It's the collage. It's um, Reed floating in front of a collage. And I think it's, this is the best collage we've seen from Kirby so far. Um, Yeah, for sure. It's just because it's also sort of abstract and it's representing this crazy place that is, you know, unthinkable in this world of comics that fantastic four inhabits. So it's a perfect time and place to do this he spent the time on it and it's you can tell you know it's just beautiful i don't even know how he would have done that like you know what i mean i can't look at it in reverse engineer like where he got those images from for the collage i mean like you know you have what looks like a canyon or maybe the like the grand canyon or some kind of high desert or whatever like i yeah right. i get that like but you know you've got these weird circular they almost look like those frisbees that don't have a middle you know what I mean? Those rings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know where he would have got, and especially, you know, they didn't have Google at this time. Like you had to find these images in magazines and newspapers and cut them out yourself. And totally, I mean, cutting a circle like that is really difficult. Yeah. Like even by today's technological standards, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's no real way to do it, <laughs> that, you know, I mean, unless you have like some kind of an automated, you know, like sort of die cutting machine or something, but right. Um, other than that, you're just using a compass and an exacto and hoping you don't screw it up, you know, and he did it <laughs> 12 times in this, you know, at yeah. the very least 20. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a strong close second for me, but I got to go with that one. I kind of was waxing poetic on earlier. The one of, of not Ben Grimm riding that meteor to a uh, fiery certain atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, there's something about, images like that that i've always really gravitated toward maybe it's the the juxtaposition against like a normal thing yeah it makes them more real yeah exactly so that that's probably why this i'm drawn to this one so much but that that's definitely the the panel that stuck out to me the most no it's it's wonderful i yeah there's so much good stuff in that issue man uh, Ibrahim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you have, hey, thank you guys. What, what can we, uh, what can we plug for you and, and where can people find you online? If that's something you want people to do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm on Instagram at Ibrahim underscore M underscore art. And that's I B R A H I M. Um, same handle on Twitter without the art. So just at Ibrahim underscore M underscore, um, Instagram is uh, mostly action figure customs and art. That's pretty much all it is, really. My dogs will sneak in there every now and then. But, <laughs> um, Twitter, I you know, is a little more opinion and you know, sharing political discourse and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so you know, pick your poison, I guess. If you, if you <laughs> <laughs> uh, my website is uh, IbrahimMustafa.com, and uh, you know, I've got some info on Count, which is you know the aforementioned graphic novel I've got coming out. Nice. Uh, and as well as like, you know, kind of a, a index of past work that I've done. Um, and then, yeah, you can look me up on Comixology and find the stuff I've done on there if you want to check it out. Um, and uh, yeah, other than that, I'll, I'm around. <laughs>
Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, and as for us, uh, you can find us, uh, marvelbythemonth.com. Um, on Instagram, we are at Marvel by the month and, you know, Facebook and Twitter. You'll find us if you're looking for us, uh, go to the website. We've got all of our links there. Um, you can always drop us a line at Marvel by the month at gmail.com or, uh, email us a voice memo and, uh, might wind up, uh, in the episode if that's a thing you, uh, would like us to do. So I think that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm very excited for what we've got coming up in season four. I think we started out really wonderfully um, with an awesome guest. Um, so hopefully a lot more of that coming up. Oh, yeah. I think all that remains is for me just to say that uh, my name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. And I'm Ibrahim Mustafa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And, and two of us will see you next week for next month. Yeah. What are you doing next week, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> first class remember oh that's right yeah yeah oh, magneto yeah. deflects the bullet from uh moira mctaggart and it it hits charles in the spine yeah yeah which is a much better story yeah you should have killed me when he had the chance charles ah <laughs> 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 uh, that's really good uh, i just kind of we... I, I just want to do like half an hour of ibrahim's impressions <laughs> <laughs> like i think you missed your calling <laughs> We you gotta just, have a good Ian McKellen Magneto line in you. Oh you know? yeah. yeah. <laughs>